Well, it's a joy to worship the Lord and to worship with you. It was such a good word earlier that uh, Pastor Randy mentioned in terms of the reality of distance and the reality of nearness. And though we can be distanced by proximity or circumstances, nothing can separate us from Christ's love and nothing really can separate us from the fellowship that we have and the knowledge of koinonia fellowship. We are one in Christ together and uh, I'm excited about that. I want to encourage you tonight uh, at five to Basically, come back to your screen, come back to your um, live stream and dial in or click on for Worship in the Round. The reason I mention that is once a month we do Worship in the Round. It's a second service. It's a second opportunity to open God's Word. And this week is the passage from John 15 on God being the vine and how we are the branches. We abide in Christ and hanging on to Christ is why we have fruit, why we bear it. And we need that vital connection to Christ. And Pastor Steve Hatter, uh, he's an executive pastor here, but he's a master seminary student. He's going to pour his heart out for half hour or so um, during that worship in the round time from John 15. Don't miss it. Gather around and um, show up to that because we all need it. We need the input. We need to be intaking the word of God. And so we're going to do that uh, right now from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. And Hebrews 13 is uh, an amazing section of scripture because right here we have before us the applications for life. All of Hebrews has been building towards applications of how to live it. And we've been talking about some very personal applications. One, hospitality, which is opening your home. It's pretty personal. Two, aligning yourself with those who are persecuted or mistreated. Those who name the name of Christ and are suffering for it. And so if you align yourself with that person or those people, you will have suffering. Three, we've been talking about marriage. That was last Sunday. How loving each other. Hits in the home and loving your spouse, loving marriage, esteeming it in a culture that wants to obliterate marriage. And now to get really personal, we're going to talk about money. Talk about money. Now, I've been told over the years that I should do a sermon series on money. Talk about stewardship. That's the Christianized way of talking about money. We're stewarding the money, God's resources. He owns it all. I get it. But I've kind of passively resisted doing a sermon series on money. I haven't really given a whole lot of thought to doing it. I'm willing to, but I really find myself attentive to the way the Spirit of God leads through expository preaching, through biblical exposition. And so we're talking about money because the next verse that I'm going to exposit and explain is on money. And so... The Holy Spirit has brought us to this text at this time for purposes that are unknown to me to talk about money. And money is a sensitive topic right now. It couldn't be more apropos for us to have a biblical framework in terms of money, what it is, what it means to earn it, what it means to count it, what it means to steward it, what it means to give it. What does it mean? 
What does money mean to you? What does money mean to me? And I confess that during this shelter and home quarantine time, the pressure of the unknown has caused me to count my money precisely, to know exactly what I have, what my assets are, what my debts are that I owe, what how do I get my head around my resources right now? Because resources could begin to run out if a world global pandemic continues to pressure on. And it looks like the economy is going to open back up. Looks like things are going to fly open. But what will that mean? Will things then again shut back down? Some of you have lost your jobs. I want to be sensitive to that as I talk about money. This is not a give more money sermon. This is just what does the Bible teach us about money sermon. Some of you have been furloughed. Some of you don't know if you're going back to the exact job jar that you had before, the exact station of life. Money now is not a social status issue. Money is a matter of provision, a matter of resources for all of us. It's like the class system is completely broken down right now. Money matters to your life. It matters to how you sleep, right? If you have money, you probably sleep better. If you're stewarding your money, managing your money well, you're sleeping better. Your health is better. Your temperament is better. And the contrary is true. If you feel like things are running out or running wild, then you're sleeping less, your health is poorer, and your temperament is probably on edge. Money is the resource that God uses in our lives to test us to see where our heart really is. And that's why it comes up as one of four clear applications for Hebrews 13. Where's your heart? Where is it in terms of money? My brother is a pastor in Atlanta, and as you know, a lot of the economy around Atlanta has to do with flying and the Delta industry, and he has a lot of pilots who are grounded and have been grounded for months, wondering, are people going to begin to fly a lot more when things open back up? We have the same kinds of economical concerns, concerns here in Alaska with oil. People are not burning gas, right? People are not burning fuel. And so if they're not burning fuel, what does that mean in terms of oil prices? What does that mean in terms of jobs? What does that mean in terms of the economy? It's all cyclical. It's all wound together. But really, what does it mean in terms of our faith? What does all of this mean in terms of what God is exposing and peeling back so that we will trust him all the more? I've got so much here to talk about that I won't be able to talk about all I have even in my heart or in my notes. The Bible is replete with a discussion of money. It's full about, full up in terms of how to think about money. These days, the pandemic virus has raised the specter in terms of death, our mortality. It's also raised our attention regarding money and the economy. These are the two big issues of our world that are pressed in front of us. Our mortality, death tolls, etc., and our and the fragility of life, and our money. And can we work? Can we earn? Can we provide paychecks and life 
being sustained, all raised up because of an aggressive, invisible virus, causes us to take inventory and to find out what we are supposed to do about this and how we are supposed to think. If you look at verse 1 of Hebrews 13, just to get a running start again, this is the overarching idea of these applications. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, it's the phileo love. Let the affection for fellow members in the body of Christ continue. Let your heart stay soft perseveringly. Let it be soft in terms of the mission. Let it be soft in terms of persecution, the mistreated. Let it be soft in terms of marriage, your marriage and marriage in general. Let it be soft in terms of money. In verse 5, if you'll zero in on our applicational verse this morning, look at verse 5. It says, keep your life free from love of Money. Stop there. Love of money. Same word as in verse one, phileo. Don't be a money lover. Be free from being a money lover. Phileo, money. (laughs) Affection for money. Let brotherly love continue, verse one, but be free from the love of money. Something that can bind you up and stifle and suffocate your spiritual life is the dangerous dangerous love for money. Money, now I should say, is not sin in and of itself. If you're taking notes, what we're looking at here is what does it mean to be a money lover? We need to know what it means to be bound up in money, in this sin. It's not by accident that Paul in his lists of sin that we need to avoid uh, lists the sin of sexual immorality, which we talked about last week, the marriage bed being undefiled. And then right next to that, the sin of covetousness or greed. Ephesians 5, 3 is where Paul lists sins. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Verse five, he says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Everyone who has an idol for money in lodged in their hearts, what's going to happen to them? It says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So what we're talking about is not money management sermon. What we're talking about is not give more to the church sermon. This is where is your heart sermon. That's what we're talking about. If you have covetousness that's lodged in like an idol that you're worshiping, then you're not right with God and you possibly might not be going to heaven because you need to repent of this sin and become a Christian. Colossians 3, 5, put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you? Now, this is speaking to Christians. These are temptations that come back into the heart, things that need to be killed. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Kill it. Kill it. Kill the sin of being a money lover. Contentment is what cuts this sin out of our hearts. Verse 5, keep your life 
Hebrews 13, look at verse 5 again. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So cut this out of your heart and put this into your heart. Cut out covetousness and put in contentment. We need to learn about what it means to do this spiritual work in our lives right now. You can have a lot of money and love money, and you can have very little or to no money and love money. You can fall prey to lusting for what you have and want more of, what you're hoarding, what you're misering, or you can fall prey to the sin of wanting what you desperately think is the answer for your life. Money, it's going to help me. Money, it's going to make me. Money, it's going to help my life feel better. Those kinds of sinful lies that can invade the heart bind people up. You can be living the high life with a lot of money and be an idolater, or you can be homeless, sleeping on a grate on the street and be trapped and ensnared in the sin of loving money. Having said all of that, money is not sin. Earning money is not sin. We need to talk about the motivations behind money and earning money that can become sin. You need to have pure motivations, not evil motivations, not lustful motivations. There are biblical motivations for earning wealth. There really are. And there are documented believers in the Bible who were wealthy. You have Job who had a lot and a lot taken from him, but then he was restored, I think maybe fourfold of what he had before. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. Abraham was known to be a wealthy, wealthy man. David as king was wealthy. Solomon, his son, was wealthy. Now, Solomon and Ecclesiastes said wealth and trusting it is vanity, but he had so much wealth that the queen of Sheba was in awe of his wealth. So it's not a sin to be wealthy. Even Paul in prison under house arrest told Philemon to take Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to him as a new believer. And he said, any damage that was done to you by his leaving you, put it on my account. In other words, Paul had means He knew how to live with a lot and live with a little, but at times he had means. Having money is not sin. The issue is what is the motivation behind having money? Well, first of all, we need to work so that we can provide. Provision is a proper motivation, a biblical motivation for having money. The Bible commands the believer to provide. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, He who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. Worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever. And 1 Timothy 5.8 is talking about his relatives. And then it says, especially for members of his household. And he says, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever if he does not provide. Who are these relatives? These are our spouse, our children, our parents. Providing. Providing, giving, you make money so that you can give the money away, even to your own household, even to provide food, provide clothing, provide shelter. We don't want to enable people. I detest the scenario where a child grows up and becomes an adult and then becomes a codependent person who's enabled by parents who is not earning their keep. 
The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if you don't work, you don't eat. We need to work. I love the value of work. I think working is a spiritual value. Whether you work a secular job or a job within the church, you're working as you use your gifts and you use your talents and you're investing your talents and you're investing your earnings to multiply money, not to worship it, but to provide for the needs of your family. Money. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant. We're to look at the ant, the tireless worker that just continues to plod and work. I enjoy working. Work can be therapeutic you do it with the right heart motivation and you're not an affirmation junkie and you're not looking for accolades and you're not patting yourself on the back in terms of your performance ethic. You work because it's what God has given you to do where you worship him and you're earning through that and you're providing through that. People who work more typically live longer and are healthier for it. Number two, another motivation for Surrounding money, a biblical motivation surrounding having money is so that we can use it as an act of submission by giving it away to our governing authorities. You say, what? You say it's spiritual to pay taxes? Yes. And it is unspiritual. It is ungodly. And it is wrong to lie on your taxes, to intentionally rip off the government, to be unsubmissive. The Bible te- teaches about being submissive to governing authorities in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, I would invite you to turn there, 1 through 8. We know Jesus' words uh, to uh, basically to Pharisees and, and those who were coming to, to trap Jesus, to ensnare Jesus, to try to get Jesus caught off guard. In the Gospels, in Matthew 22, 15 to 22, they were saying, you know, we know you to be this amazing person. They were using flattering speech. And, but, but what do you do in terms of paying taxes? And Jesus said, give me a coin. Show me the denarii. And whose picture, whose imprimatur is on that? Whose imprint is on that? Caesar's. Well, render to Caesar what is Caesar. And render to God what is God's. In other words, One does not cancel out the other. Why? Because God established, he created governing authority. He created it for our protection. He created it for our good. Romans 13, governing authorities were to be subject to governing authorities. Verse one, there is no authority except from God. This is all top down through governing authorities. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Verse 2 will incur judgment for that. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, God's servant is government. Verse 4, he brings the sword through government. Verse 4, verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So in conscience, now we come to giving money to God's government. You say, what about the fact that it's reprobate, it's evil, it's secular? Now I understand there is a time to obey God rather than man. I understand that that's not what today's sermon is about. But by and large, we need to be submissive to what God has put before us for conscience sake. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Verse seven, pay to all what is owed to them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except love each other. And thus fulfills the law. Now, let me just say this to you. It's very easy to get an attitude with your money where you believe that the government is coming after you to take what they do not deserve or are not owed for any number of reasons that we can conjure up in our thinking, in our minds. But we need to understand, just like a bill that comes in the mail, that when you use goods and services, when we enjoy the protection of governing authorities, we owe money to those things. When you get a bill, you owe money to that company and they're collecting. And that's not evil. That's not wrong. It's actually ungodly to try to beat the system, to try to not live within two worlds. We live in two kingdoms, the kingdom of the city of man and the city of God, as Augustine put it. The kingdom of this world and this world to come. Well, the third motivation is worship. Why do we give at church? Why do we give towards missions? Why do we give to supply preaching? Why do we give towards ministry? Not just because we agree with how the church is going or we like the philosophy of ministry or we don't give because we don't like how it's going or we don't give because we don't like the philosophy of ministry. We don't like the theology. It's changing and so we don't like it. Now you for sure want to be careful to Align yourself with a place that is biblical, a place that is preaching God's word, that has a true gospel. But we don't give or not give as customers. You don't give or not give as consumers. You don't give or not give because of how you feel about something. You really don't. That should all take place in terms of your submission in a church, your alignment with a doctrinally sound gospel preaching church. That's what should happen at the forefront in the first place. We give because we worship the Lord. We give because God has commanded all of us to give and we give as offerings to the Lord. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the giving was also monetary to bring a spotless lamb, to to bring pigeons. These were part of what people could afford to do. You gave either the lamb or you gave the turtle doves. You gave these things because of what you could afford. But you're giving out of sacrifice. You're giving out of the overflow of what God has given to you and what he has commanded you to give. Those worship offerings were burnt on the altar. altar. Hebrews has talked all about that in the old covenant system. In the new covenant system, we are to give out of our hearts sacrifices of praise from our lips, but we're also giving offerings through our hands, through our means, so that the Lord will be pleased with that. It's a worship offering. That's why we give. Now, there's some texts and some passages that open this up, but I invite you to Bible study with me a little bit. If you'll look at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to kind of toggle back and forth a little bit just to get at the heart of giving. And I'm just scratching the surface, but these attitudes are very clear once you understand them and once you sort of record them in your mind. This 2 Corinthians 9 is talking about a collection. There was a collection that was, was rounded up for the purpose of relief to 
um, the church in Jerusalem. The mothership church had had come under persecution. And though it was the original launching pad of the first missionary journey, as the Gentiles began to believe in the known world around the Mediterranean and the church at Antioch and the Galatian churches and the Macedonian churches were believing and were strengthening, they had means to actually gather that money and give it back to the church in Jerusalem to support them. Not that they had taken money from Jerusalem, but they were giving to them back because in the sense that they loved Jerusalem and they loved where they had come from spiritually through the missionaries. So these offerings are, um, are, are this, these texts are to be known in that context. Look at verse six. It says, the point is this. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I'm going to take that principle up with our next point, but just see the point in terms of the heart of the giver. The giving heart is a cheerful heart. Some people have translated this as a hilarious giver. Someone who is just saying, listen, not to be irresponsible. We have to steward our money and manage it to give to our families for provision. But we need to give out of what we can towards the church, towards God in worship also. And how do we give? How do we decide how much to give? Look at verse 7. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. It's grace giving. It's giving to the Lord out of the overflow of our hearts and our consciences. You say, I like to give 10%. Great. If you can give more than that, great. If you have to give less than that, great. You're deciding what you can give out of your own heart. Not reluctantly. This isn't under compulsion. This isn't under guilt. Guilt giving is satanic. Guilt giving will actually harden your heart to give out of guilt. Leadership that guilts to get people to give is wrong, is satanic, is false teaching, is damnable. It's wrong. We give out of our own hearts of worship. We give out of praise to God. When you physically give or you type digits in to give, think about it, pray about it, give it to the Lord and say, I'm giving this toward you, toward your church, toward your mission, toward your kingdom, because I want my heart to do that. That's giving. Giving is the heart. It's always been that way. It is that way. Giving is done sacrificially. It's done with regularity. Look at 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians 9, but 1 Corinthians 16. This theme that's Pauline. 1 Corinthians 16. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, this is talking about the relief offering going down to Jerusalem. It says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of, the, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that, where, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, you're, you're setting aside money. You, the, the discipline of giving is that very thing. It's a discipline. It's a decision. It's a choice. When you give, you're choosing to give. When you don't give, you're choosing not to give. 
That's, it's as simple as that. However much you feel like you can give, it is a choice. It is done deliberately. It's done in light of the mission. And giving was no respecter of persons. It was the Galatian churches that were giving. And it was also the Macedonian churches that were giving. It was the Corinthian church that was to be giving. Verse 5, he says uh, in chapter 16, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And it goes on from there. Macedonian um, churches were giving. They were giving churches, and we're going to talk about that. But first of all, turn over to Romans 15, just to fill out what was going on in giving for the early church, in particular with this relief offering. First, uh, Romans 15, verses 22 and following. I could read a lot of this chapter, and you should read all of it to get the fuller context. But he says, for this reason... This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I am no longer, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while at present, I'm going to Jerusalem. Here it is bringing aid to the saints. He was transferring this offering down to them for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem for they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. Now, how do they owe it to them? They owe it just out of love for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. They gave. These churches gave. They gave out of love. They knew that they had been benefited by the gospel that had been launched from Jerusalem. Have you benefited from the gospel? That should flood your heart in terms of gratitude and saying, I want to give to the Lord because he has given me truth. One more place before we get off this point. Philippians chapter four. It was read earlier. I just want to show you how a faithful church is commended in terms of giving. Look at their testimony in verse 11. These are churches that are in Macedonia and the church at Philippi. He's saying that not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned whatever situation I am to be, be content. He knows how to be brought low, how to abound. Verse 12, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look at verse 15. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, for I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Watch this. Here's the worship. All this missions giving is worship, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and father be glory forever and ever. That's that's giving. Giving is worship. 
Giving is something that is sacrificial worship in the church. Paul was a tent maker. He was bivocational. He also says in the um, pastoral epistles that someone who's set apart for full-time work is worthy of double honor, whether missionaries or pastors, local church leaders. People are set apart for full-time work, but that's not the point. The point is we give at, as worship to supply for the ministry, and we've been given so much, and so we're in this cycle of gratitude where we're giving sacrificially. Second Corinthians, you say, well, I don't have very much to give. Well, back to the Corinthian church. We're just kind of bouncing around here. Second Corinthians chapter eight speaks of uh, giving and how they gave. It's amazing. Look at verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, that you by his poverty might be rich. That's the theology of the gospel behind giving. Now go back up to um, 2 Corinthians 8. Look at verse 1. What you know, brothers, about the grace of our God, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. Here's the grace giving again. They gave out of what they could do. As I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here's that relief offering again. They wanted to be a part of it. They were suffering. They were being hammered. They were being persecuted. They didn't have much, but they gave according to their means. They dug in deep. A lot of times persecuted churches give more, serve more, pray more, do more. Because they realize that God's in charge of it all. A lot of times people who have a lot don't give a lot. But people who are squeezed give even more. All right, last point, faith. So we give, we give out of uh, provision. We're providing for our family. We give out of submission to governing authorities. We give out of worship to the Lord. And we give by faith. We've already read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You might look over again at that. Um, If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. It's the sowing and reaping principle. Why do we give? We give because we are saying to God, God, I'm giving this as a seed. And I want to see you blow my mind in terms of your provision. That's unexpected. That's empowered. That's incredible. Not so that we can grow rich or wealthy. This is not um, worldly investing. I don't have a problem with investing our money and trying to do it wisely. But as you know, the stock market can crash. It's sowing spiritually. It's sowing into the kingdom of God and watching God take care of you. Now, sowing and reaping doesn't undo our obligation to provide for our family. It doesn't undo our obligation to give to the government, which really reflects the tithe system of the Old Testament. We're giving. It doesn't, it doesn't negate the worship dynamics All of it is God-centered in our giving, but ultimately we give because we're sowing and we're reaping. Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you. It'll come back to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It's the idea of holding a seed barrel and the seed was, was pressed down 
so that more seed could be put into that sack or barrel. And the idea is that when you give, God is going to give back to your seed barrel at a level that you can't even contain it all. It's running over. It's running over. Giving. Remember the widow's might where she gave. A lot of people will say that her giving really is unrealistic because why, how, how can we give all that we have where we're going to be starving? But widows were taken care of in this regard. And this woman is a picture to contrast those who had a lot of money, those who were, were superficially spiritual and giving as a show. And this widow gave out of her heart. Luke chapter 20, verse 45, in hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast who devour widows. They're pressing them and being oppressive on widows, houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Then verse chapter 21, verse one, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. It's a picture of sacrifice, though she was in, a, in an abusive situation. All right, so money in and of itself is not sin. Money is what we give out of sacrifice. It's something that we are participating in with faith that is giving money. The Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things he'll add to us. Matthew 6, 33. We know these things. But point two, though money is not sin in and of itself, point two, loving money is sin. I should say lusting for money is sin. Trusting in money to solve things in your life that money cannot solve. Money can't solve broken relationships. It can't. Money cannot solve a heart that's cold towards God. Money cannot ultimately bring you joy, distract you with temporal happiness, but not lasting joy. Remember Aiken's love for money cost the battle at Ai. Joshua, I'm not going to turn there. Joshua 7, Joshua sends fewer troops in. Hey, let's just send a couple thousand in because those troops over there, those enemies as we're entering into the promised land, they're, they're not really strong enough to beat us. And then God whooped up on or allowed AI to whoop up on the Israelites. And Joshua was undone going, what have I done? He ripped his clothes. What is happening? God, why did you let this happen? And suddenly it was discovered that Achan, as he was running around on the battleground, looked in a tent and saw something that he wanted. He saw riches, he saw wealth, and he stole instead of fighting and stuffed it into his, his family's tent and buried it down there. And so probably the family members knew that and were culpable with this as well. But regardless, the battle was lost 
36 lives were lost in that battle. And ultimately, Achan was brought to court and was brought into trial. And Joshua said, give glory to God and repent of this. Ultimately, his repentance was met still with the consequence of him being cast into a hole. He and his family, his livestock, where boulders and stones were heaped up on top of their head. It's an example of where greed will make you end up. I've heard of successful businessmen that were suddenly finding themselves behind bars and asked, well, how did you end up here? It was with a little bit of compromise. And I went off into a trajectory that ended up in prison. Judas Iscariot, it's not mistake. It's by no mistake that he's the treasurer, but he's an ungodly treasurer. He's condemning Mary who was anointing Jesus' feet and head with oil and her tears and Judas rebukes her and says this money could have been given to the poor. That's guilt leadership. That's satanic leadership. That's compulsion leadership. It's wrong. She was worshiping with what that anointing oil represented in money. She was worshiping Jesus with that. Money's not evil, but money is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's meant to be invested to make a profit. Jesus' parables um, speak to that, but it's not to be trusted in, in a way that's harmful to our hearts. It's not to be stored up. You remember the parable Jesus said of the man who said, you know, I want to take my ease by ripping down the, the storehouses that I have and build bigger ones and live my life to build a huge bank account of storehouse of stored up goods so that I can take my ease. And he says, you're a fool. Don't you know this day? Your life will be required of you. The appointed day is now and you're dead. One thing about having God allow this pandemic that has raised up the awareness of how fragile life really is. It sort of levels the playing field. So as we worry and fuss about money and economy, we also need to counterbalance that with the fragility of life and what really matters it's not to undo the fact that we need to provide, but you dare not make money into an idol. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to each other. We don't have time to unpack that, but the whole storyline of that scenario was the fact that they had rationalized the worth of property that they sold. And they said, well, the property values would have been this or that. And so when we sold it, it really you know, sold in, in this regard. So now we're going to give this much money. You'll have to unpack that. But that's what Peter's rebuking. The property was the same value that it was before it was liquidated, liquidated into money. And so the money value should have been the same as to what you would have agreed to be giving the church at that time. So they were unscrupulous. They were rationalizing what they were doing. And that's the sin of rationalizing away things to keep hold of what you should be giving to God. They were both struck dead. They had both conspired together and in separate accounts lied to the Holy Spirit and were killed for it. An elder in 1 Timothy 3 cannot love money in this way. Proverbs 23, 5 promises that money will take wings and will fly away from us if we're trusting in it. Can't give in to greed. You can't worship it. Worship God, not money. Matthew 6, 24. 
First Timothy 6, we'll just sort of bring it to a faster close with all the, the truckload of verses that we've covered, which I've only scratched the surface of. But turn to 1 Corinthians 6. This is the stinging warning of putting your trust in money. Money is not sinful in and of itself, but the concept, but the reality of money is very, very dangerous. You need to understand that fine line of what I'm saying. Money is not sin, but money is very tempting to sin with. It's very dangerous. It grabs the heart. It grabs the heart. First Timothy chapter six, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. Listen, just listen to the scripture. Plunge people into ruin and destruction. How dangerous is this? It's not just being disobedient as a giver. This is... The idolatry of loving money for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That love of money, that craving, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You want to be run through with life circumstances, worship money. Rationalize away the stewardship of what you need to do with your money. Be ungodly with your money. Lie about your money. Cheat the government with your money. Hide your money from providing. Don't provide for your family with your money. You want to be run through with the spears of life circumstances that will destroy you. Worship money. They wandered away from the faith, condemning themselves. The rich young ruler, he was unwilling to follow Christ because he said, what do I need to obey? I'll keep all the law for you, Lord. And Jesus said, we'll sell everything. In other words, expose his heart, showed that he was worshiping money instead of Christ, and he went away sorrowful. Exposed his false trust. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I should have done a sermon series on money because this sermon is going long. <laughs> but I just, it's on my heart. I want to just kind of give it all to you. It's more difficult for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to receive eternal life. And the apostles were stunned by that teaching that Jesus gave in Mark 10, 23 through 27. They were shocked. Well, who can, who can be saved? Who can receive eternal life? Well, what's impossible with man and wealth is possible and made possible through heart transformation by what God can do in the heart. Spurgeon said, it's not possible to satisfy the greedy. If God gave them one whole world to themselves and they would cry for another. And if it were possible for them to possess heaven as they are now, they would feel themselves in hell because others were in heaven too. For their greed is such that they must have everything or else they have nothing. John Rockefeller, he was the, known as the richest man in the world at one point. Someone asked him how much money was enough. He said, just a little more. <laughs> He had a million dollars, and after he earned a million dollars, the friend asked him, how much more do you want? He says, another million. Let me just ask this question. What solves money loving? You've got to turn back to Hebrews, Hebrews 13. What solves this? It's one promise. 
says, free yourself from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What dislodges love of money? What dislodges this idol of money? Money? It's the promise that God is with you. It's a crowbar that dislodges this idol from your heart. God is with you. It's a promise that's used all through scripture. Genesis 28. We don't have time to go through this. Deuteronomy 31. Joshua 1. God said it over and over again to his followers. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Guess what? Even David to Solomon, God will be with you. He practices, he he promises the presence of God in the lives of these people. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We are promised God's presence. You say, how do I, what is the spiritual crowbar that can get this idol out of my heart? I love it so much. I'm ensnared by it. It's ruining my life. You have to believe and know that God is with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Verse six, it gives you confidence. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is with you. That's what dislodges the idol of money in the heart where you love it so much, you're sinfully worshiping it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, nothing. You have God and that's the point. That's the point. Verse six says we have confidence. Verse five says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's repeated over and over again. And this is why the believer can say with the author of Hebrews, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. If you're afraid, you can say this, God, you're with me. You're with me. I might not have a job right now. I might be on furlough right now. I might can only give a little bit right now. God, you're with me. You're with me right now. You're in the fire with me. He's with you. He's your helper. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He promised in the great commission. I'm with you. Go share Christ. I'm with you. He's with you with what you have and with what you don't have. This is the contentment of faith. This is where you need to be if you want to be free from the love of money.